Well, dear congregation, I ask you to turn your very prayerful attention to that passage that I read to you in 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 1. We concluded Lord's Day before last, two weeks ago, as I was away last Lord's Day preaching elsewhere. We concluded Lord's Day before last, the book of 2 Samuel, which essentially is one book. And here we come to 1 Kings, and I suppose... As some have done, they have divided the book in two. There's nothing wrong with that, but all of it we would conclude is the word of God. First and second Samuel have ended. But as we thought of last time, as we were gathered around God's word in second Samuel, it ended rather abruptly and unexpectedly, didn't it? It didn't end with the death of David. We find the death of David here in first Kings chapter two. That will come shortly, but it ended in a rather unexpected way. It ended with David appeasing God's wrath there upon the threshing floor of Arona, or also called in First and Second Chronicles, Ornan, who was also called Orana, the Jebusite. Remember, he purchased that threshing floor, purchased all the livestock, all the animals. Remember how David sinned, how he numbered the people of Israel. He did this in pride, even foolish Joab tried to stop him. But David carried on, and after the nine months in which that whole time of censoring the people took place, David's heart smote him. We read also, didn't we, in Chronicles, that it was Satan also taking up that occasion, indeed enticing David too, to number the people. Not just was the anger of the Lord against Israel, because we're told there that God even moved in such a way, not that God is the author of sin, but chapter 24, verse 1, and again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. There was no, indeed, remember, there was no repentance amongst the people. There wasn't any remorse of their sin. Well, the anger of the Lord kindled against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. Well, of course, God cannot be held responsible for David's sin, but David was a very proud man, and even we read, didn't we, earlier, last time, that in Chronicles, even Satan took advantage of that occasion when David was filled with pride. And it was an occasion uh, for God's judgment now to fall upon the Israelites who had not repented of their sin, and David in his pride numbers the people. That was forbidden. That was only ever to be done if sanctioned by God, and in the yearly numbering of the men of Israel, and the money was to be given as the atonement money to the temple. But it was not done on that occasion. David numbered the people out of pride. He took pleasure in this, as Joab even said. Why does my Lord take pleasure in this thing? And of course, there was a great plague that came upon all of Israel because of that sin because of David numbering the people of Israel. And God ultimately is judging Israel for their sin. And how many men were killed? Well, over 70,000 men were slain from Dan to Bathsheba. And Gad the prophet came to David. David was grieved in his heart. He knew that it was a sin. And he sought the Lord, and God sent the prophet Gad And Gad said to him that he must sacrifice to the Lord. And 
Aruna had all the wherewithal, he had the land, he had the threshing floor, he had the animals, but David said, I, and of course, Aruna said, you can have it for free, but David said, I will not give to the Lord that which costs me nothing. David bought it at a price. And as we said, true religion will cost us something. David wanted to show that he was responsible for this. Although the judgment came upon Israel, it came through David, who numbered the people of Israel, the fighting men, in pride. David was also, indeed, complicit in this. Now, when the sacrifice took place there at the threshing floor of Aruna or Onam, we're told that the plague was stayed, that God's wrath was turned away. And really the theme, we could say, as we said last time in Second Samuel, is Christ Jesus our Lord is being set forth because this would be the place, the very place where the temple was built at the threshing floor of Arana. Some people have wondered how did David know where to build the threshing floor? Well, it was told by the prophet. And then David said to his son Solomon, again if you turn to Second Chronicles 3, 1, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared unto David his father in the place that David had prepared in the threshing floor of Arnon the Jebusite. So this was the place where the temple was built, where the sin of Israel was appeased, or God's wrath was appeased, where sin was propitiated, not in a final sense, but where God's wrath was turned away. And this was the very place, again, as the temple was built, and where the Lord Jesus Christ himself would walk into that very self-saved temple and place. Of course, it would be destroyed and then rebuilt again, but it would be that place, the Lord's temple, where sin and sacrifice, uh, sin would be dealt with by sacrifice, where lambs would be slaughtered year after year until the very Lamb of God would come into the world. So what was being set forth at the close of the book of Second Samuel is Christ. Our Savior, ultimately, the book of First and Second Samuel, as we said last time, is not a biography about David. No, we must never read the Scriptures that way. It's not about David's life, but about Christ. That's why he said, search the Scriptures. In them ye think ye have eternal life. And it is they, but it is they, he said, that do testify of me. Christ is being set forth at the close of 2 Samuel, as that place where he would make sacrifice for his people. He would be, of course, led out of the temple and outside of Jerusalem and be slain there upon Calvary for his people. Now, as we come to 1 Kings this morning, we're going to begin to start to study here about Solomon. The reason why there is a change now is our focus is turned away from David 
And it is turned to another king, David's son. But of course, David has a greater son, the Lord Jesus. And again, just as David was a type, Solomon also is a type. In what way was David a type? Well, he was a type in that sense. Remember, in the last few chapters, we read of how David overcame all of his enemies, of course, by the Lord. He was the conquering king. But of course, David always falls short as a type. And types always do fall short. And we will see likewise with Solomon. Solomon will fall short as a type. But he does typify Christ in this sense, that there is a reign of peace now. David, at the close, remember chapter 22, uh, is really about how God helped him, David. How he overcame all the enemies. And likewise, Christ one day will make all of his enemies his footstool. And his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom of peace. And all of these things are setting forth the great king that was to come. The one who said that he was greater than Solomon. Remember, as he said in the temple, even a greater than Solomon is here. And so here, as we will see, this is why there is a change now. It's the theme of kings. And every king that does not follow on in the way of this type will be judged. Judah were to be a righteous people. Of course, uh, the northern kingdom will fall one day. They never had a king again. Same with the southern kingdom. There was a day when they never had a king again. Until, of course, King Jesus comes on on the scene and was crowned with thorns. The picture of a curse. So that he might be a blessing to his people. He took their curse at Calvary. So here, kings, first kings turns our attention away from King David. David is going to die. The focus now is upon Solomon, who is a type. And the theme, we could say, just as the theme of 2 Samuel was David, the conquering king, of course that foreshadows Christ. Solomon here is a king reigning and a king at peace. And that will be true. If you turn just to... 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 20. Let me show you this. We read just a, a few chapters on. 1 Kings 4, 20. Judah and Israel were many. 1 Kings 4, 20. Judah and Israel were many, as the sand which is by the sea in multitude, eating and drinking and making merry. And Solomon reigned over all kingdoms, from the river unto the land of the Philistines and unto the border of Egypt. They brought presents and served Solomon all the days of his life. So there's no unrest in Israel and Judah now. There's no infighting. Here is a solid king. And he pictures Christ, I suppose, and his eternal kingdom. There's going to be everlasting peace. It was a peaceable reign. Of course, he wasn't a perfect king by any means. He certainly had his flaws and his sins, and we'll see that. Of course, all the types and the shadows do. But essentially, his kingdom was a kingdom of peace, foreshadowing the peace and the prosperity of Christ's eternal kingdom. 
Remember what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 12:42, the queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it for she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold he says behold a greater than Solomon is here so whatever Solomon is we must look to the greater to the antitype to Christ now here David is very old and weak isn't he we've read this in this passage he, he can't get heat in his body. And, uh, well, there are some lessons to learn here and things to take heed to. Remember, as we come to this passage, David really is near on his deathbed. In chapter 2, we will read of his death and uh, the way that he parts. But here we have another son. It's not over yet. Remember, David had a wicked son, Absalom. And he was slain because of his wickedness, because of his desire to be king. But now in this chapter, David being very weak, David being very old, he has another son, Adonijah, that wants to be king, wants to reign. And he's taking advantage of the situation. But as we come to consider these things in this chapter this morning, and the wisdom of God given to David and to Solomon, I want to just glean a few things from this passage and make application for our lives. First of all, in verses 1 to 4, verses 1 to 4 point us to David's physical weakness in his old age. But he is not the same man inwardly. Now, certainly we will see from this passage that David does have his weaknesses. And that's true for us as Christians. As we look over our lives, we ought to say that we are not what we once were. Paul, could he not say, I am what I am by the grace of God. And the grace of God toward me was not in vain. And it's not in vain. But remember this, we will struggle with sin till our dying day. But that never excuses us. Sin will always cause us grief and will be painful in our lives and in our lives of our family if we do not conform ourselves to God's word. Now I want you to notice here David's physical weakness in old age and here we're dealing with a particular sin that he used to struggle with and what is that woman? But notice in verse 1 to the verse 4 now King David was old and stricken in years and they covered him with clothes but he got no heat. Now, this is a very common thing, isn't it? When we get older, we hear of old people. Circulation is poor. And it seems here that as many clothes as they put on David, he just couldn't get any heat. He was probably either shivering all the time and cold, so his servants, his servants decide to, to get him a young virgin to keep him warm sort of like a, a hot water bottle. You can imagine somebody clinging on to him all the time and holding on to David. Now, of course, as we've said, David had a real problem, didn't he, before? Women were his weakness. We read of how many concubines he had and uh, how he struggled. And uh, that led, of course, to adultery, to take another man's wife. And then that led to what? To murder. 
David had this constant struggle. And now his servants, they send him a young virgin. Verse 2, wherefore his servants said unto him, Let there be sought for my lord, the king, a young virgin. And let her stand before the king, and let her cherish him, that is, literally, hug him, keep him warm, and let her lie in thy bosom, that my lord, the king, may get heat. Now they had obviously no other idea or thought that she would be used in any other means for this than just to simply keep him warm. So the servants send him a young virgin. Her name is Abishag. Now, all of this, of course, is in the providence of God. It doesn't, I personally think, it's unwise. But David obviously felt he could restrain himself in this situation, and he did. He had a weakness before, but he seems here to be able to restrain himself. It says, the king knew her not. Verse 4, and the damsel was very fair. In other words, a beautiful young lady, and cherished the king and ministered to him, but the king knew her not. In other words, he had no intimate physical relationship with her. So, before, David was not easily able to resist woman, but it seems now he is. Now, while it was probably unwise, and you know we must never say never, we've got to be careful. And no doubt, as David, this girl clung to him, you can imagine maybe what's going on in his mind, of course, No doubt temptation would have been there. I'm sure that her presence would have haunted him to some degree of his past. You not think? Her presence, her beauty. But thank God, by the grace of God, he was able to resist. Now I would say this, add to this a little caveat. We should never put ourselves in the way of temptation. When we know we have a weakness, run far away from temptation as possible. That's all I will say to this. But we do commend David, however, for resisting any sexual intimacy with this young woman. It is commendable. Now, this is all in the providence of God, what takes place here, because what we will see is that this damsel is the means by which Adonijah is destroyed. We will see it in chapter 2, because Adonijah asks for this particular young damsel, when David dies, to be his wife. And that was a sign that he was trying to usurp Solomon, his authority. You see, God is working through all things, sometimes in ways that we do not know, but it never excuses sin, does it? Never use providence to excuse sin. So, well, God might be glorified in this thing that I'm about to do. So be careful. But she does feature in this. She forms the backdrop to the destruction of Adonijah, and Solomon, he, being feared by the people, destroys Adonijah because of what 
Adonijah asks concerning this virgin. So that's all we really have to say. I'm giving you a little bit of background to the story here, to this occasion. You notice in 1 Kings 2.46, So the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Jehodiah, which went out and fell upon him, that is, Adonijah, that he died. And the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. This son of David, Adonijah, this wicked son, he goes and asks Bathsheba for this young damsel. Go and speak in David's ear. Go and speak to Solomon, rather. And uh, Solomon, on hearing that, he's no fool. Solomon was given great wisdom. And he says to Benaiah, fall upon Adonijah, and he was destroyed. Solomon, let me say, has to be recognized as king. Why? Because the king of kings must come into the world. That's what's behind all of this. Jesus Christ must come into the world. The king must reign. And Solomon himself must reign. And let me say this. There were those, as we will see even in this passage, that rebelled against Solomon. There were those still rebelling against even David. One of them is Joab again. His head raises up again and he is dealt with. But let me say, those, because Solomon is a type, those who rebel against the king will be destroyed. Those who will not bow and give Jesus Christ honor and glory will be humbled. So that is what we're going to learn from all of these passages surrounding Solomon. So firstly, we have here David, old in age, but not the same man, certainly in this area of his life. He's able to resist this young damsel. She is there warming him. But that must have been surely a haunting thing upon his mind, his past. What women have cost him. Women who uh, he should not have taken to himself, but he did. Now Solomon, in verses 5 to 10, we have a rebellion and a division. Well, really a rebellion because Solomon was to be king. That was promised to Bathsheba, his mother, and also, as we will read of Nathan here as well, the prophet. Solomon was the one who was to reign. Why? Because the Lord Jesus, if you read through the account, even in Matthew, if you read through the lineage, Christ must come from David's line and from the line of Solomon, from Bathsheba even. He must come and he should be king. So here we have the rebellion of Adonijah. Notice, first of all, in verses 5 to 6, Adonijah's self-exaltation. Then Adonijah sent the son of uh, then Adonijah the son of Haggith exalted himself, saying, "I will be king." And he prepared him chariots and horsemen and fifty men to run before him. Now David had many sons, but here is one that is next in line. But it was not to be him. It was already confirmed to Bathsheba and to others that Solomon should be king. 
But this man, he, he decides to exalt himself. And he gets to himself here 50 men, chariots, horsemen, and 50 men to run before him. That has an echo, doesn't it not, with Absalom. Because Absalom did exactly the same thing. How many men did Absalom get? 50 men, didn't he? If you just turn back there to 2 Samuel 15, verse 1, and it came to pass after this that Absalom prepared him chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate. So he had this great sort of entourage of men and uh, he would be seen riding around as some sort of royal official, at regal as a king. And remember how he tried to bribe the people and say, well, if I take on your court case, there he was at the city gate, I will see all is well for you and so on. And we're told there, Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Now Adonijah, he, this is self-exaltation. And uh, he says, I will be king. And, uh, well, we read here that he was a goodly man. You notice concerning Adonijah, it says he was a goodly man. Verse 6, and his father had not displeased him at any time, saying, why hast thou done so? And he also was a very goodly man, and his mother bare him after Absalom. So they shared the same mother. Goodly there does not mean he was good. It means he was handsome. Just like Absalom. Remember how he had that long flowing hair and he was a fine example. And uh, very handsome. And likewise, this man Adonijah, exceedingly handsome. And it seems that David has a weakness to indulge fine-looking sons. <laughs> Again, this sin is still there in David's life. He has a tendency to indulge fine-looking sons, to turn a blind eye to their faults. Verse 6, And his father had not displeased him at any time, saying, Why hast thou done so? His father never challenged him, questioned him, there can be a few reasons for this, but of course it's always sin, isn't it? You see, very often handsome young men might win the hearts of people. And it could well be that the father did not want the son to lose uh, the hearts of the people that he had won by his looks. Could be all sorts of things. Fathers can take pride in the handsome looks of their sons. Why, he's my prodigy. He's from me. Lots of reasons why, but this is wrong. He seemed to love his son more than he loved God. And this is something that really didn't leave the heart of King David. He had this ongoing sin. He indulged handsome sons. Terrible, isn't it? Now this son is even saying, I'm going to be king. David just doesn't even challenge him. Despite what he has promised to Bathsheba, despite what he has promised to Solomon, he lets this wicked son carry on. The son, he rises above his station, and David did nothing. 
Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared him chariots and horsemen. I mean, he should have seen, this is exactly as I said what Absalom did. History, it seems, is repeating himself. It all has echoes in the past relating back to Absalom, as we read there in 2 Samuel 15. Why did David not deal with this? Well, we don't know the answer ultimately, but whatever it is, it's sin. And let me say this, we must never, 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 never put our family before God. And you know, we can do in many areas of our lives, whether it's your son, whether it's your wife, whether it's your grandchildren, Jesus Christ must have preeminence. Our duty is to God, not to our family. He indulged his fine-looking sons. Then we have the conspiracy taking place, verse 7. And he conferred with Joab. This is Adonijah, the son of Zeruah. Joab, because he knew he could. We've seen this treacherous man Joab before. You never know which side he's on. So he confers with him, the son of Zeruah, and with Abiathar, the, could you believe it? Abiathar the priest. Well, he is eventually killed in the next chapter, Abiathar the priest, and so is Joab. Both these men will die by the hand of Solomon. They following Adonijah helped him. You see, there's, a, there's actually a rebellion here against David, because David had said Solomon would be king. And there's a rebellion against the true king now that is to be Solomon. This again proves that Joab couldn't be trusted. Neither Abiathar. Well, this is terrible. But notice the faithful men that cling to David, verse 8. But Zadok the priest and Benaiah the son of Jehoadiah, Nathan the prophet and Shimei and Ray, and the mighty men which belonged to David. Those are them who we were told of in 2 Samuel 22, these mighty men, they belonged to David and were not with Adonijah. But there are traitors here. Now there's a a plot. This man who's calling himself king, or to be king, Adonijah, what does he do? He holds a great feast, verse 9 and 10, where he slays oxen and sheep and everything else, and he invites all these people except... Lo and behold, who? Nathan the prophet? Solomon. Two men excluded. And David's, of course, faithful men. Why? It, it's, you should be able to see right through this now. It's a plot. It's a ploy to undermine Solomon, to undermine David. You see, ultimately, this is rebellion against the Lord. Because it's rebellion against the Lord's anointed. Solomon. That's how we need to see it. It's not just rebellion against David and Solomon, but it's rebellion against the Lord. And it's true, my friends, even within a church. The Scriptures tell us, Hebrews 13, verse 17, Obey them that have rule of you, over you. Why? Because they have to give an account of your soul. And it's not profitable for you to disobey. I am not the king of this church. And I am not the head of this church. The Lord Jesus is. 
And he has appointed me as a pastor, as a, as a minister of the word of this church. And woe betide me if I fail to teach the truth. So it's not rebellion against me if you're rebelling against something I can show you from Scripture, but you are ultimately rebelling against God. Thirdly, loyalty to the Christ by faith in the promised line of Christ. Loyalty. And there is loyalty. You notice in the verse 11, right through to the verse 31, there is the loyal side. There is the rebellious side here, Adonijah, but then there is Nathan and those who follow. The godly line by which Christ was to be born through Solomon. Verse 11, Wherefore Nathan spake unto Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, Hast thou not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, doth reign? So he wisely goes to Bathsheba because he knows the promise that was given to her that David made. And David, our Lord, knoweth it not. He's not sure. Now therefore come, let me, I pray. Now, we're told here that David never seemed to correct this son. Whether David was aware of what the son is doing at this point, it's hard to tell. But nonetheless, Nathan goes and he challenges the situation. He goes to David. Well, first of all, he tells Bathsheba to go to David because Adonijah is plotting to be king. He's holding this great feast. And then he says, I will go in straight after you. And so they both confide with David. And uh, in verses 15 to 21, you see Bathsheba goes in and she reminds him of the promise and the oath that was made to him. And Bathsheba, verse 15, went in unto the king, into the chamber, and the king was very old. And Abishag the Shunammite ministered unto the king, and Bathsheba bowed and did obeisance unto the king. And the king said, What wouldest thou? She said unto him, My lord, thou swearest by the Lord thy God unto thine handmaid, saying, Surely Solomon, my son, shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne. So she, she tells him all that Adonijah is planning to do, verse 18 and onwards. And then, just as Nathan said, he would walk in, he walks in. Verse 22, And lo, while she yet talked with the king, Nathan the prophet also came in, and he shares the whole thing. And then, Nathan proves it's a conspiracy by the select invitation that was issued by Adonijah. And Zadok was not invited, the other priest. But uh, Abiathar was. And uh, Nathan, who was always faithful. You remember even when David sinned? Didn't he say, David, thou art the man? You know, Nathan always spoke the truth to him, didn't he? Faithful are the wounds of a friend, my friend. Christians tell you the truth sometimes is painful. But they are your real friends. And Nathan was a real friend indeed. Well, David then calls for Bathsheba. And he renews the promise to her in verse 28 following. He says, And as the Lord liveth that hath redeemed my soul out of all distress. David 
he thinks back, you know, he, he remembers this promise. Yes, I did promise. But it's in light also of all the mercy shown to David, as the Lord liveth and hath redeemed my soul out of all distress. David thinking back of all, all that he has done wrong in his life. Yet the Lord was always faithful. How can I let this thing now slip? And has God not promised that he would put one upon David's throne? Yes, and it would be through Solomon. Now notice, David now will assert who is king. Asserting who is king, verse 32 to verse 34. As David said, call me Zanuck the priest. And there's this great procession, and uh, Zadok is going to anoint Solomon. He does anoint him with oil, and uh, they go to the place of Gihon, and there's a great noise because everybody is celebrating that Solomon is now king. The voices coming from the streets are so tremendous. And there is uh, Adonijah feasting with his Men that he has gathered, even Joab and the traitors, traitors against David. They hear this commotion and say, what is happening? And Well, the message comes in. Verse 41, the noise is heard in the city. And Adonijah and all the guests were with him, heard it. And they made an end of eating, as they made an end of eating. And when Joab heard the sound of the trumpet, he said, wherefore is the noise of the city being in an uproar? Then all of a sudden, Jonathan, the messenger, comes in. Notice verse 42. And while he spake, behold, Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, the priest, came in. And Abiathar, was, by the way, was in there. And Adonijah said unto him, Come in. And he tells him, Verily our Lord King David hath made Solomon king. So we have a solemn awakening to the truth. This man who thought he would be king, it's all over. The anointing has taken place. David has pronounced him king. Now this leads to a great dismay of the rebels, and they flee. Verse 49, And all the guests that were with Adonijah were afraid and rose up and went every man his way. Rebels, they won't help you when trouble comes, will they? Are they there to defend Adonijah? They're gone. Everyone to his own place. And it's true, one day, friends, one day King Jesus will come. And we're told that men will call upon the rocks and the mountains to fall upon them. Because the wrath of the Lamb has come. The scriptures say, though hand join in hand, the wicked shall not be unpunished. But the seed of the righteous shall be delivered. This all points us to Christ, the real king. The kings of the earth, as we sang in Psalm 2, must tremble. Because there is a God, there is a king, there is a Lord. Men must bow down to. Solomon is the great king, and you will see in the next chapter how he does not tolerate sin. And our Lord does not tolerate sin, friends. Not even in his people. Of course, we will not ultimately face the second death because he died for us. 
but he will even bring sore chastening upon his own people. Please, I'm sick and tired of this namby-pamby Christianity where God doesn't even chastise his people. That is unbiblical. It's wrong. I want you to notice Adonijah, verse 50, flees to a place of sacrifice, to the horns of the altar for safety. And Adonijah feared because of Solomon and arose and went and caught hold of the horns of the altar. Now this is something that often men do. Do you read this? He went to the horns of the altar. And if you you read in in the next chapter, that is exactly what Joab did. Look at 1 Kings 2.28. Then tidings came to Joab because he hears that Adonijah has been slain. The tidings came to Joab, for Joab had turned after Adonijah, though he turned not after Absalom. And Joab fled unto the tabernacle of the Lord and caught hold on the horns of the altar. Why did men do this? Because you see, they think this is a place of safety. That's what they think. The horns of the altar. There was a law in Exodus 21 verse 14. But if a man come presumptuously upon his neighbor to slay him with guile, thou shalt take him from mine altar that he may die. People do this in all sorts of false forms of Christianity. They have something they want to hold on to. Whether it's a crucifix, whether it's a Bible you've never picked up, And it's gathered dust. Hold on to my Bible. Judgment's cut. That won't save you. The man of God says, let God be God. This man, Adonijah, he runs to the horn of the altar and he's thinking this is going to keep him safe. Anyway, he's summoned before the king. And uh, what does the king say? Well, uh, before we get there, what I said about how men run to the horns of the altar, this is what people did in Jeremiah's day. You know, when God, through the prophet Jeremiah, said, don't say the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. What were they saying? Remember, Jeremiah was saying, the Chaldeans are going to come. Jerusalem's going to be laid waste. He said, remember how it was in the days of Shiloh? 369 years. The temple was there in Shiloh in the days of Eli. But what happened? Jeremiah 7, he says, Say ye not, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. People drew safety in a place. Then in verse 12, he says, Go ye now unto my place, which was in Shiloh. He says, Go and have a look at it now. What was that? What's there now? Nothing. You take your refuge in things and even the temple. You think that's your hope? Some people, they walk into a church and they think, Oh, I'll be safe here. You won't be. You won't be. You take your safety in God, you rest in Him. Well, Solomon says, 
here, verse 51, and it was told Solomon, saying, Behold, Adonijah feareth King Solomon, for he hath called hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear unto me today that he will not slay his servant with a sword. See, he knew he was guilty. He knew he was wrong. But again, the law is very clear. And Solomon said, If he will show himself a worthy man, there shall not an hair of him fall to the earth. But if wickedness shall be found in him, he shall die. So what happens? Solomon sends for him. And you know what? As we read here, Solomon, notice the closing words. So King Solomon, verse 53, sent, and they brought him down from the altar. And he came and bowed himself to King Solomon. And Solomon said unto him, Go to thine house. In other words, he stripped him of all royal rights. Remember, he was the king's son. He sends him back to his house to live an ordinary citizen's life. You keep yourself far away, in other words, from my kingdom. Solomon is now king. And what he says here is, if he is found, verse 52, a worthy man, there shall not an hair of him fall to the earth. And what we find in the next chapter is because he asks for this young virgin, who was David's, by the way, and by the way, she was viewed, this Abishai, as a sort of secondary wife, as we will read in the next chapter. And because he asks for her, that shows he still has designs upon the throne of Solomon. And for that, he is slain. He is not a worthy man. My friends, God gave Solomon great wisdom. We do know there's an occasion that we'll meet with soon. There are two women fighting over a child. Whose is it? Can anybody know whose it is? He says, get the sword, cut the child in half. The true mother said, no. You see, wisdom, God gave Solomon. And God is altogether wise, my friend. He knows where your heart is right now. Are you trusting in the horns of the altar or the God of the altar? Is your faith set on the unseen Christ who is the King of Kings? And that your only acceptance is through His work as the Lamb of God. We were teaching the children this morning there are two essential things that Christ came to do. Number one is to live a perfect life of righteousness for his people, that he might be called the Lord, our righteousness. That is his active obedience. The second is his passive obedience. Christ died once, once for his people. And that's my trust. And that's my hope. And if any man glory... That did not glory in himself. Christ Jesus is the king. He's the king of our lives. He's the king of glory.
And we must bow to him. He must take the place of preeminence in our hearts, in our lives. We must give him the glory. Adonijah wouldn't. Adonijah wouldn't bow. And you know what? The natural man says, I will be king. I will be king over my life. Nobody going to tell me what to do. Nobody going to tell me how to live. But my friend, when you become a Christian and you realize by the grace of God how you say, you say, this Lord Jesus must reign. He must reign in my heart. He must reign in my head. He must be my Lord. Or he must be my judge. It's one or the other. He's your Lord. Or he'll be your executor. What's the question? What's the answer here today? Is he your Lord? Or will he execute you? It would be right to do so. Because we have sinned against him. Let us bow. Let us kiss the king. Amen.